Hi, folks. Thanks for tuning in to this segment of Next on the Tee featuring my all-time favorite author and former Golf Channel producer, Keith Hirschland. Keith is a fantastic writer and an even better person. I'm excited to have him back on the show. Enjoy the segment. Before I get to my next guest, Keith Hirschland, I want to give a shout-out to a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Strixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball at Strixon. A global leader in golf ball technology and innovation, Strixon offers a wide variety of award-winning golf balls for golfers of every skill level. Whether you're searching for a tour performance golf ball or a distance golf ball with incredible feel, Strixon provides the best golf balls at incredible prices. Strixon offers a wide variety of personalized options while also developing a highly visible colored golf ball as well. Select the right golf ball for your game today and trust it with Strixon. Check them out online at Strixon.com. S-R-I-X-O-N.com. Find the right golf ball for your game today. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Sun Mountain. There's a company nestled in the valley of Missoula, Montana, that embodies the essence of quality, function, and innovation, and that's Sun Mountain, which started building golf bags back in 1981. They are an industry leader in golf bags, travel covers, outerwear, and push carts. With flagship products that you've come to know, like the C-130 cart bag, the 2.5 ultralight stand bag, the club glider travel cover, the speed cart, and Rainflex rain gear. Sun Mountain continues its quest to provide the very best in golf products to every range of golfer. Visit them online at sunmountaingolf.com to look at their amazing products. Okay, now back, and I'm honored to say this, for the 10th time, is my all-time favorite author and one of my favorite people anywhere on the planet, and that is Keith Hirschland. Keith has been a wonderful friend for several years, and he's been a great supporter of the show, which I'm very thankful for. He is an Emmy Award-winning TV producer. He has produced shows for ESPN, ESPN2, and the Golf Channel. In fact, Keith was one of the original people that started the Golf Channel back in 1995. He has also written five wonderful books one of which is my all-time favorite book, which is Cover Me, Boys, I'm Going In, Tales of the Tube from a Broadcast Brat. He has also written great books titled Big Flies, The Flower Girl Murder, Murphy, Murphy, and The Case of Serious Crisis, which was named Book of the Year by Book Talk Radio Club. His most recent five-star rated book is titled Song Girl, A Mystery in Two Verses. And when you read it, there may be a character named after a certain host on this show that you should look out for. And I'm honored to have Keith back with me tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Keith, how are you, my friend? Hi, Chris. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And I want to just, before we get started, echo everything that Tom said about uh, uh, congratulations to you on the awards um, that are well-deserved. There is nobody, at least in terms of the folks with which I deal um, in your space, that does it any better than you. You're the best in the business, and uh, it's always an honor to be on your show. And I'm I'm really happy for you that uh, a lot of people are starting to see what a good job you do. So congratulations. Well, I thank you very much for that, my friend. It's uh, all thanks to great guests like you, though. Keith, let's um, let's talk about all the accolades that are coming your way for your latest book, Song Girl. I've seen a number of five star reviews out on Amazon. People on Twitter raving about the book almost on a daily basis. Talk about the success you're seeing from Song Girl. Man, it's pretty surprising. You know, you never know, right? You you you, you sit down and you you put all your, you know, all the work into it and 
you you have those uh those times when you're wondering if it's any good and you know you think it's pretty good and then you have somebody read it and they think it's pretty good that's all uh super surprising and and uh you know i'm just really thankful that the folks who have uh you know picked up the book and found it enjoyable and got a kick out of it and thought it was a good mystery um have liked it because uh, you just you know you never know you know in this business you never know what what uh what's going to click and what somebody's going to like and what they're not going to like and um you know i'm just i'm just i couldn't be more thrilled that so far it seems that uh, the folks who have read it enjoy it and keith i've heard you tell this story on some other shows but for our audience has you had gotten well into writing this book and instead of the main character talking in song titles, you had her talking in song lyrics, and then you learned, well, this could get me into a little bit of hot water with the writers and their managers, but song titles were fair game. Tell that story. Yeah, it was really interesting, and I, when I had, first had the idea for the book, um, I thought that, you know, um, the concept was to have, to write the entire book, the entire mystery, um, you know, around this character who, after a freak accident, awakens from a coma and can only speak in song titles. And I thought that would be really fun and challenging and to see if I could write an entire mystery with that premise. Uh, so I started down that path and, um, you know, I got, I got quite a, quite a ways into it when I hit my first detour, which was I realized that I couldn't sustain that for an entire 300 page novel. I couldn't, there was just no way that that was going to be you know, because I started as I was writing it and reading it, I started to get it, it got exhausting trying to figure out all these song song lyrics to put as dialogue. So I changed tack a little bit and decided, well, I'll make this character, you know, one of the one of the main characters in a book that has other characters, another title. And, and I had written The Flower Girl Murder and thought it, my detective in Flower Girl Murder, Mark Allen could certainly sustain another book. So I gave him another case to pursue and made Hannah Hunt, who is song girl. Hannah Hunt, by the way, is the the title of a song by a band called Vampire Weekend. So she was a, that was a natural character name for this character. Um, so I decided to make Hannah Hunt part of this Mark Allen story. Then I kept going and I was having a ton of fun, you know, purchased a number of song lyric books and, you know, Paul Simon, and the Beatles and, you know, you know, hundred greatest song lyrics and, you know, all these books that I had in my library on the floor and I've got my highlighters out and, you know, green was main dialogue and yellow was, you know, not quite so main dialogue and orange was, you know, just some aside that this character might say. And I thought, you know what, I need to uh, kind of figure out what I have to do at the end of the book to, you know, do I have to put a glossary? Do I have to have, you know, do I have to thank people? Do I have to get permission? How do I, you know, how do I go about doing that? I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a brother who is uh, also an entertainment lawyer in Los Angeles. So I gave him a call and I said, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm halfway through this book. What, what should my next step be before I, you know, keep going? And he just said, stop what you're doing right now. You can't. <laughs> And I said, wait, what do you mean? Because you can't use song lyrics. You're going to get sued. And I said, but I'm halfway through this book. <laughs> you know, do I have to scrap the whole thing? And 
I said, what do you know, what do you mean? I, can I fake it? Can I, you know, can I like maybe just keep writing it and hope nobody reads it? And he said, <laughs> you know, just stop being such a knucklehead. He said, stop what you're doing. He said, they, you know, these, these, uh, agents that work for, you know, songwriters and bands and, you know, lawyer, they have teams and teams of lawyers that are looking out for things just like this. And, you know, they're just going to, they're going to come after you. And I said, you know, and I was despondent. I was like, oh my God, I've just, you know, put in all this work and I have, I don't have a book anymore. And then he comes through with the silver lining, which is, as you said, song titles for whatever reason are fair game. So after breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief, I thought, okay, well now I have to get back to work. And instead of using song lyrics, you know, I took, I took that next step and converted all of those things and had to rewrite all of Hannah Hunt's dialogue into to make it song title. So that's that's song girl in the book. So did you ever find out why song titles are fair game? Is it because there are many songs with the same title? So that sort of opens things up or what what is good about that? You know, that's a great question. And I think that's exactly right. I think the fact that that um there's there I guess only so many titles that you can put that that, that that it isn't considered I guess an intellectual property the title of the song as opposed to the lyrics inside the song so you know I just I took I took my brother's word for it and then I did a little more research and everything that I read and everybody else that I talked to said yes that is indeed the case that you can use song titles you just can't use song lyrics I don't from the reason that that all became a okay is uh is you know I'm not sure of, but I'm glad that that it's the case. And uh, I'm not sure anybody else has you know gone down the path of trying to write dialogue in, in only song titles. But uh, I'm glad that I was able to do that. Keith, let's change gears a little bit. I want to take you back to your days at the Golf Channel when Comcast bought it out. What's it like <laughs> when a new entity like that takes over and and may not share the same vision that you guys had? When you started the channel to begin with, um, you know, it was, it was kind of a, it was kind of a double-edged sword or a, I'm going to use a bunch of, you know, I, mean, I am working on my next book, which is Murphy Murphy and the case of the commission on cliches. So I'm going to use some <laughs> cliches. It was, it was kind of a double-edged sword and, and, you know, like you, you weren't, you weren't quite sure. It was exciting because you knew that what you had worked so hard on and so hard for for so many years was being recognized by somebody else as being valuable. So it was one of those things where you thought, man, I'm really proud. You know, we should all be proud as a group of what we did starting the golf channel and, and taking it to the point where, a, you know, a, a major corporation like Comcast was interested enough to want to buy it. Um, you know, and then they came in and, and uh, Brian Roberts addressed, the entire, you know, we had an all hands, um, meeting and, you know, Brian Roberts stood at a podium next to Joe Gibbs and, and said, you know, how, what an amazing, you know, what an amazing thing he thought the golf channel was and how happy they were that Comcast was acquiring it and, and that, you know, it, they were acquiring it because of all the hard work and good work that we had all done and to keep doing it and they weren't going to change a thing. And, you know, they liked it just the way it was. And of course, you know, you know, that is never the case. So, um, over the course of the next handful of years, you know, everything changed 
pretty much everything changed. But, um, you know, in that, in those initial stages, I think everybody was just really fill, filled with a sense of pride and, and, um, you know, just the fact that, you know, when we started, when I got hired in October of 1994, I wish I had a dime for everybody who told me that I was making the biggest mistake of my life by going and joining this startup that was doomed for failure. If it lasted three months, everybody was going to be surprised. And, you know, look at it's you know, what, quarter of a century later, it's, right. you know, it's pretty cool. It is. Keith, producing a live sporting event, in my mind, has got to be a very high-stress environment, particularly for a golf tournament, because you've got action going on all over the golf course at the same time, and you're trying to coordinate all that action, all the announcers who are scattered across the golf course, people in the truck. has to be controlled chaos. What's it like trying to be the calm in the storm and keeping everybody focused? I think uh, you're... Your description of control chaos is, is a perfect one. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it, golf is, golf is a, an interesting sport from a, from a behind the scenes perspective. And because, and I think I've told you this before, but you know, in terms of sports, most, most stick and ball sports, um, are director sports because, um, there's, you know, kind of a goal or, or, you know, an, an objective and there is, um, one, you know, one ball in play or one puck or one, you know, one, one thing that, that guys are chasing or throwing or hitting. And then there is, you know, one team playing offense and one team playing defense. So nine times out of 10 in those sports from a TV perspective, if your cameras are pointed at the ball, you're telling the story of the event. Now, everything, you know, that, Surrounds that is part of the broadcast. You know, if you go into the lives of the players or, you know, play calling or why did this guy run this route or did this, you know, did this pitch, did this pitcher throw this pitch at the right time? But in terms of watching the sport on television, the, you know, if the camera is pointed at the ball, the guy watching the, the guy or girl watching the game on TV can pretty much tell where the action is. And as you mentioned in golf, there are a hundred and 56 balls. There are 18 fields of play. There is everybody's playing offense. Nobody's playing defense. And there are no scheduled timeouts for commercial breaks. So the producer, it's really a producer sport. Golf is because the producer has to decide who he's going to show when, you know, whether the producer is going to show that shot live or recorded moments ago. Uh, you have to decide, you know, when to you have you have to break away from the action that's ongoing they don't stop when you go to commercial so you have to break break away from the action when it's ongoing to get in the commercial breaks that's why things like playing through and those kinds of uh initiatives have been really kind of a boon for the for at least in the production truck because you never really go away from the action they just split the screen so that you know we didn't have that when i was doing it i had to go away to commercial break for two and a half or three minutes and then you have all kinds of shots stacked up, you know, that happened during the commercial break that you have to get in. As far as being the calm in the storm, I'm not sure that the, the great, talented, wonderful people that I was lucky enough to work with would um, consider that I was always the calm in the storm. <laughs> um, I, I might have been the storm a handful of times, but uh, um, 
you know, you have to stay calm. I mean, obviously you're, you know, you're kind of in charge. So, you know, getting, getting uh, all riled up and emotional and screaming and yelling isn't really going to help the situation, but uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge and it, it helps to be, uh, it helps to be able to uh, watch a number of things at once and listen to a number of people at the same time, kind of a scatter, kind of a scatterbrain approach in terms of what's going on in your head. Did you have a pet peeve as a producer? <laughs> um, you know, I had a few of them, I think. Um, I think my, you know, my biggest one was a, a, a couple of big ones. One was, and still is when I watch, it's having the announcer tell me something that I can see for myself. That to me is, is, is one of the, my, one of my pet peeves and one of the, one of the no-nos in terms of, you know, what I would tell if I was still doing it, what I would tell the folks that were announcing uh, under under me would be like people can see that that putt just missed, or he, oh he left that a little bit short, or that was just a little bit you know uh, you know the the ball is rolling off the the right side of the green. It's it's television, you know people people can see that. So what you have to tell people is why that happened, or um, what would be better in my opinion is don't say anything at all. Just let let them watch it. That um, I think that. Certain terms always drove me crazy. Um, you know, unbelievable to me is the worst word you could ever use if you're um, broadcasting a professional sport because these are the best in the world at what they do. And I can't think of any situation that a PGA Tour player, uh, any shot that a PGA Tour player pulls off, I would describe as unbelievable. I mean, there are so many other, other words, you know, um, unexpected, you know, spectacular, uh, amazing, um, you know, get a thesaurus out and, and just, you know, it's not unbelievable. And perfect is another one. To me, you know, you can't have the only perfect shot on a golf course is one that ends up in the hole. So, um, when announcers say, you know, oh, that's a perfect drive, it's, well, if it didn't go in the hole, it's not perfect. It could be perfectly placed in the fairway. Um, that's, you know, that's perfectly acceptable to me. But, you know, to say perfect, to say unbelievable, to say, you know, those are kind of things that always drove me crazy. Keith, I know you've worked with some great friends of this show, like John Mahaffey, Dottie Pepper, Frank Novello, to name just a few. All great players out on tour. And tour players, like you said, are the best of the best at what they do. Plus, they're independent contractors. But now they show up on your set and I'm sure they're a little nervous and certainly, you know, they're <laughs> not used to somebody speaking to them in their ear when they're trying to talk. How do you kind of coordinate a, a a guy or a gal who's a great tour player, bring them over and help them get situated for how to do great television? That's a great question. And some of them, you know, some of them picked up on it and, and have done an amazing job. And the, the folks that you mentioned were, were among the best at it and still are. I know John's not doing TV anymore, but, um, he was, he was really good. And, and Frank and I mean, Dottie, I mean, those two are, you know, among, among the best, um, you know, golf broadcasters working today. Um, I think that, you know, what I always tried to tell them was that, you know, I had to, I had to get them out of the mindset of, of, what they were used to as a player in terms of practicing 
practicing, practicing, practicing always kind of in their minds led them to, you know, and I, I, I shouldn't say practice makes perfect, but the more they practiced, they felt the better they got. And, you know, what I had to get them out of that mindset of, you know, this is going to be more, you know, of a think of yourself as a viewer, as a fan, react to what is going on around you in real time, as opposed to trying to, you know, sit and, and watch somebody else's golf tournament on TV and practice how you would announce that golf tournament on TV. It, it's more of a, you know, I, I would tell them that it's like you, you know, golf, you know, what the players are going through. You have been in those situations. So this should be an easy thing for you to talk about. And I said, that's, you know, that's what I want you to do. I don't want you to be an announcer. I want you to be a golfer talking to a guy sitting at home and explaining why something is happening on the golf course. And, um, you know, I said, I can, I can help you do that. I can set you up to be successful at that. What I don't want you to think you have to do is become a television announcer because that's not the job. The job is for you to be a golfer talking about golf. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll go through the mechanics. If you don't want me to talk in your ear, you know, while you're talking, I won't. If you don't want me to, you know, give you more information, if you want me to give you less information than I'm giving you or more information than I'm giving you, I will. You know, that's, I can, I can adjust to you. What I want you to do is feel comfortable in the space that you're talking about golf when it's your turn to talk on during the coverage. Keith, you got to spend a lot of time with players on what's now the Corn Ferry Tour. And back in 2011, the top money winners were making three to $400,000, which is a lot of money until you take things out like taxes and caddy fees and paying for your <laughs> own travel and meals and hotel, et cetera, all those sorts of things. Did those players talk to you about the financial struggle and the pressures of trying to stay on tour and to be able to afford to be able to stay on tour? Some of them did, but you know, I would say that if, if, if my memory serves me, you know, the, 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 there was this kind of a two different groups of, of players when we were doing the nationwide tour, the corn, what is the corn ferry tour now? Um, you know, it was kind of, there were these, these young guns that were out there first year, first couple of years on tour that, you know, thought that, you know, they were going to, you know, be the next, next great thing and weren't, weren't thinking about anything other than playing the best golf they could play so they could get their, their tushies onto the PGA tour and start, you know, showing everybody how good they were. And then there was this kind of group of players that were, you know, had been either bounced back and forth from the PGA tour back down to the corn Ferry tour, or that we're maybe spending the next handful of years, um, you know, just trying to fine tune their games, getting ready for the champions tour. And those were the guys that would talk about, you know, how tough it was um, just to, you know, just to pay the bills and stay afloat and keep the dream alive. And, you know, the young guys were, you know, they, they just threw caution to the wind. They just wanted to go play golf and, you know, they, they were just of the mindset that I, you know, I am good enough that, you know, the, the money's going to come, you know, that that's, that's the last thing on my mind. The, the only thing on my mind right now is, is, you know, winning these tournaments or finishing in the, gosh, when 
we were doing it, it went from, you know, the top five to the top 10 to the top 20 to the top 25. So that was the goal. That was the only thing that they were thinking about. But there was a subset of guys that you could tell were, you know, they, they were grinding. They, they knew that they needed a, you know, a top 10 finish, you know, just to, to, to support the lifestyle that they needed to support. And, you know, you kind of, you know, you felt for those guys because you wanted them to succeed and you want, you know, that, that, that I have said this a hundred times that, you know, I've produced and been around a lot of sports and, and a lot of athletes and, and golf. I, you know, you, you can't find a better group of, of professional athletes than the, than the guys that play on, on the PGA tour, on the champions tour, on the corn Ferry tour, on the European tour. I mean, it's just, it's just a great group of people. So you always, you rooted for all of them, but you could tell there were folks out there that, you know, they needed to make a check to pay some bills and you kind of rooted extra hard, extra hard for those guys. Keith, just a couple more before I let you go. And knowing players, knowing guys out on tour the way you do, do you think Phil should have any trepidation about showing up at the PGA Championship next week at Southern Hills outside of needing to avoid Greg Norman and the Saudis? <laughs> Gosh, I, you, you hope that he would feel comfortable just showing up and, and being able to defend his championship, don't you? I mean, don't you yep. wish that for the guy that you know, been, you know, such a huge part of the game. I mean, I was lucky enough when I first started working for ESPN, one of the first tournaments I did was the Tucson Open that he won as an amateur. And, you know, I mean, the the guy has been such an amazing player and an amazing ambassador for the game. Um, and you would, what I hope, what I would hope for him is that he can show up at the, at a major championship to defend his title and have some peace in doing that. Um, you know, the rest of the stuff is noise and, you know, who knows what choices people make and, and what they do once they make those choices. But, you know, for, for that week, I, I would just love it for Phil to be able to be in that bubble and be able to defend and just feel like he was in a safe space. Keith, before I let you go, let our listeners know again, you got a new book that you're working on. Talk about that and then how they can get a copy of the others that, uh, that you already have out. Oh, you're nice, Chris. Thank you for that opportunity. And now, as always, I want to thank the folks at Beacon Publishing. Bobby, Bobby Collins saw something in me. And so far he's, uh, he's liked my work enough to, to take it to his bosses and say, let's, let's publish. But you're right. Um, Murphy Murphy in the case of serious crisis, which was just before Song Girl. Um, always, I always intended that to be a trilogy. So the second time, Murphy Murphy is now, um, trying to solve a case that involves the commission on cliches. So once that is up, then he'll turn his, uh, turn his attention to maybe a collaboration with the pun police. So that will be the Murphy Murphy <laughs> trilogy that, um, ha- you know, two thirds of it is still in the future, but, um, Song Girl is, uh, doing great. It's on Amazon. It's at, um com and it's at deaconpublishinggroup.com and you can pick yourself up a copy it's a it's a fun read it's not as fun as murphy murphy but i think it's a good mystery and i and i think people will enjoy uh enjoy try, you know, enjoy trying to find the song titles one critic uh, called my writing um a literary easter egg hunt so <laughs> i li- i like that so i'm going to go with that that's awesome and so are you I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. You're my all-time favorite author and just one of my favorite people anywhere on the planet. 
I well, can't thank you we enough. We didn't even talk friend. about your character, Chris, Christmas Carol <laughs> the Biker, the head of the biker gang. People, read this book. If you like Christmas Carol, you're going to like Tron Girl. He's one of my favorite characters in the book. Anyway, thanks, wow. Chris. It's always a pleasure being it. with you. Take care, Keith. All the best you and your family. We'll catch up soon. You too. Yep. Look forward to it. See you, Keith. That is a great Keith Hirschland. Again, Song Girl is fantastic. And I'm one of the many honors that I've had doing this show is the fact that Keith Hirschland called me one day and asked me if he could make me a character in the book. And, uh, you'll find me at CT Mascaro, as you guys know, is, is my handle on Twitter. And you'll recognize that as a character in the book. So I can't thank Keith enough for thinking enough of me to want to use my name as a, as a character. And, uh, like I say, come back and be a part of the show 10 times now to have your favorite author and a great friend continue to come back that many times means a great deal to me. So, and like, like I say, and so does Keith. So look forward to catching up with him again soon.